As we come to the end of our brief series on the person and character of God, we come to the most important issue in the universe, and that is the subject of the glory of God. Everything in the universe exists for the glory of God. Everything that is made was made for the glory of God. The glory of God is the goal and sum total of everything. So it's important that we know what this is all about. We hear and use the phrase glorifying God a lot, but I'm concerned that we don't stop to think about what that really means. Could you give an answer to the question if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to glorify God? What, what is the glory of God? How do we glorify God? Those are some of the questions we want to answer in this final message of the series. To begin with, it's important that we understand the difference between God's intrinsic glory and the glory we give Him when we glorify Him. So let's begin with some definitions. When we talk about the glory of God, there are really two aspects to it. One kind of glory is God's intrinsic glory, And the other kind of glory is the glory we give to Him. God's intrinsic glory is the glory that He has in Himself. So let's begin in Isaiah 6 as we develop this. And more than in any of the other messages of this series, we'll need to turn to a lot of passages. So just plan on doing that or jotting them down if that's easier for you. But we'll need to piece together a lot of passages when we eventually get to the question of how do we glorify God, because we're going to put together a list and a passage or two with each item on that list. Isaiah chapter 6. A familiar passage to many. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each had six wings, With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here the angels affirm the fact that God has glory. On this occasion they didn't say give him glory. God has glory because it is intrinsic to his nature. We don't give this to him because it's his by virtue of who he is. To say it another way, if nothing had ever been created, God would still be a God of glory. Look back at Exodus 33, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 17. Exodus 33, verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. This was Moses' request. Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
This is a fascinating passage of Scripture. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God showed him his goodness, grace, and mercy because God's glory is the composite of his attributes. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, and don't miss the next phrase, full of grace and truth. John says we looked, and what we beheld when we looked at Christ was was, uh, someone who was full of grace and truth, and by seeing that, we beheld the glory of the Father. There again, God's glory is linked to His attributes because His glory is, in a sense, the composite of His attributes. What light is to the sun, what blue is to the sky, what wet is to the water, so is God's glory to himself. You can't make water wet because it's already wet. You can't make the sky blue because it's already blue. You can't make the sun light because it's already blazing light. In like fashion, God is glory. We can't add to or take away from his intrinsic glory because we can't add to his nature We can't add to his essence. We can't add to his attributes. God is God. When you say God, you've said it all. He is infinite in his essence. He is infinite in his attributes. And that is his intrinsic glory. In Acts 7-2, he is called the God of glory. God has intrinsic glory, but... But God can be glorified. In other words, glory can be given to him by his creatures. That doesn't mean we can add to his glory, but it means that we can expose his nature or expound on his nature. We can, to say it another way, we can enhance God's glory in the eyes of people. So glorifying God is establishing and enhancing His reputation. It's imperative, beloved, that we understand that if we want to glorify God. We talk about living for the glory of God, and we want to glorify God. Glorifying God is establishing and enhancing His reputation. Why does this need to be done? Well, God is spirit, according to John 4.24. And as such, he can't be seen, according to John 1.18. People around us, people can see an impersonal display of God's glory in the majesty of creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Creation displays the power and majesty of God. So it sends out a general message about God's glory, but, but it's an impersonal message which is why Jesus became incarnate. He came to personally display the character and glory of God. The verse I quoted earlier, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 14.7, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to this earth and showed the glory of the Father as he set on display 
the character of God, the attributes of God, but now Jesus is gone. He ascended back into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and here's the kicker. He left us to display the character of God. Understand that if people are going to see the glory of God in person, now again, people can see the glory of God in creation. If people are going to see the glory of God in person, then they will have to see it in us. That's a heavy thought, isn't it? If people are going to see the glory of God in person, they have to see it in us. Jesus indicated this in Matthew 5. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5, first gospel account, first chapter of the immortal Sermon on the Mount. Again, familiar words to us. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And by the way, in the original, there is strong emphasis. You and you alone, you, my people, you, those of you who belong to me, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, you, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they, do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And here it is. And glorify your Father in heaven. There it is. It is our responsibility to live in such a way so as to establish and enhance God's reputation among the people that live around us. God's reputation, His glory, is connected to our reputation and the way we live around other people. That is an immense responsibility. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. Keep turning to the right. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, here it is, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on ta tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart." The phrase I want to emphasize for us is that first phrase in verse 3. And I realize each translation is different, but it's saying the same thing. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ. You've heard the saying, and there's a lot of truth to it, that you and I are the only Bible some people will ever read. You and I are the only personal display of God's glory that some people will ever see. And remember, the term Christian means little Christ. We are supposed to mirror the image of Christ because that's part and parcel of what it means to glorify God. Now, with that as a foundation, let's get into some of the specifics of what it means to glorify God. Again, we use the phrase a lot. We throw the phrase around a lot. But maybe we've never really stopped to think, well, what does that mean? Or how can I do that? So I want to give us a little list so that when we talk about glorifying God, we don't view it as something that's vague, ethereal, something that's very specific, a list of 
Oh, seven or eight things here. Number one, and we'll have to turn to passages for each of these. Number one, we glorify God when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Look at Philippians chapter 2. You can keep turning to the right, past 2 Corinthians to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Remember what Paul says here. He says in verse 9, Therefore, that is in light of what Christ did when he humbled himself by becoming a man and humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and here we go, to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified when Jesus is received as Lord. God is glorified when we bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. God is glorified when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord. The Lord Jesus carries with him the glory of the Father. So to come to Christ... Just in coming to Christ and bowing before Him and yielding our lives to Him as Lord, that gives God glory. Because God has determined that He is Lord. And so when we yield, we say, yes, we're basically saying, yes, God, you are right. He is Lord. And I acknowledge Him as my Lord. That is the starting point of it all. You can't really give God glory if you have never acknowledged, received, whatever term you want to use, uh, responded to Jesus as Lord. That's the starting point, but it's only the starting point. Number two on our list, we also glorify God by bearing fruit. Go back to John chapter 15. Back to the left, the Gospel of John chapter 15 as a part of the upper room discourse given by Jesus on the night before his death, he was seeking to encourage his men and instruct his men. And look at what he says in chapter 15. The opening verses, he uses this analogy of being the vine, and his father's the vine dresser, and we're branches. And of course, the goal of the branches off the vine is uh, the, the goal is to bear fruit. And so he uses that analogy. And then he says in this, this in verse 8 by this, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. God is glorified when we bear much fruit, because then people around us can see the results of a Christ-filled life. Now again, that's a, that's a phrase that we use quite a bit, fruit, you know, want to be fruitful, bear fruit. We don't stop to define it or delineate it, so let's be more specific. What kind of fruit glorifies God? Because that's just a general term used throughout the New Testament to describe a lot of things. So what kind of fruit glorifies God? At least two kinds, our character and our works. Galatians 5.22 speaks of our character when it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That's the issue that many people skip right over in their thinking. 
when they hear the term fruit, they're thinking of sort of cranking something out, producing something. They fail to realize that God is just as concerned about our attitudes, our, our character, our insides, if you will, as he is our external works. So the right attitudes, the right character traits are part of the fruit that glorifies God. But also, so are good works. Ephesians 5, 9 says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So fruit is good deeds, a righteous life, holy habits. Paul prayed for the Philippian believers that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. He prayed for the Colossian believers and said this, that you, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work. God is glorified when we bear the fruit of good attitudes, good character traits, and good works. Number three on our list, God is also glorified when we maintain unity. Go over to Romans chapter 15. We're in John, skip Acts, and then look at Romans chapter 15. And as you can tell, we're just going to passages that use the phrase bringing glory to God or giving glory to God. So that's, that's all we're doing is a little study of what does it mean to glorify God, specifically from statements in Scripture. Romans 15, verse 5, says this, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, According to Christ Jesus. Well, why is it so important that we're like-minded or that we have unity? That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we not only represent God individually in our lives, we also represent Him corporately. So when we don't get along with each other, we make God look foolish. And the opposite is true. When we manifest unity, then we glorify God. That's why Ephesians 4.3 says that we are to work hard at keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's far more at stake to unity than just getting along and not having tension in relationships. It's a far bigger issue. The glory of God is connected to it. So the next time you or I one of us is about to do something or say something that will create dissension and division. We need to remember that doing such is striking a blow at the glory of God. My doubt is that very few Christians understand that. The seriousness of creating disunity. God is glorified when we maintain unity. And Ephesians 4.3 says we have to work hard at it. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. God is glorified when we maintain unity. Number four on our list, God is glorified by sexual purity. Look at 1 Corinthians, the very next letter in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. 
And I should pause here and just even go back uh, one verse or two verses earlier. One of the problems Paul argues here in this text is, is that one of the problems with sexual immorality is that there's a sense in which a, a Christian who commits sexual immorality is joining Jesus in that act. Because in verse 17 he says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So basically what Paul has been arguing is this. Listen, if you as a Christian are involved in sexual immorality, because you are one with the Lord, you are, you are including Jesus in your impurity. Do you think that makes the Lord uncomfortable? Obviously. So in light of that, he says in verse 18, in light of that reality, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. When a Christian engages in sexual impurity, then that reflects poorly on God. When we as God's people live a life of purity that paints a proper picture of God as being pure. So we glorify God by sexual purity. Number five on our list, confessing sin glorifies God. Go all the way back into Hebrew Scripture to Joshua chapter 7. This is one that may be, may be the most unusual or least thought about in the list. But Joshua chapter 7, and as you're turning there, let me give you the background story. Uh, before the children of Israel conquered Jericho, the Lord had told them not to keep any of the prophets for themselves. But as you probably know, a man named Achan disobeyed, and he buried some of the spoil in the middle of his tent. His family members, from the story we could assume, they were... They were aware of it also. They knew what was going on. As a result of this breach of faith, God allowed the children of Israel to be defeated in their next battle. So Joshua cried out to the Lord. He was just devastated. And he, he cried out to the Lord to ask why they had been defeated. Lord, what, what happened? Have you forsaken us? What's going on? So the Lord answered him. The Lord told him that, that Achan had done this, that someone had done it and through a series of circumstances, they realize it's Achan. So in verse 19 of Joshua 7, look at this confrontation. Verse 19, Joshua says to Achan, now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not Hide it from me. Notice that part of the verse that says, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. Confess your sin, Achan, and thus give glory to God. Confession of sin glorifies God. It sounds strange. So we need to ask the question, How does it glorify God? Or why does it glorify God? Because, please, please hear this. When we excuse our sin, then we are impugning God. We're doing the, the same thing our first parents did. When God confronted them after their sin, Adam, of course, says, Oh, the woman you gave me. 
So God, it was the woman and you gave her to me. And of course, then the woman said, oh no, it was the serpent. It's Rather than just accepting responsibility, it is so easy for us to put the blame on someone else and even worse, blame God. So when we excuse our sin, rather than just confessing our sin, we are basically impugning God. We are saying, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. He let me get into this problem. He's the one that sort of orchestrated circumstances for me to be in this mess, so my sin's not my fault. That's impugning God, and it certainly doesn't glorify Him. Whenever we imply that God is unrighteous, we are doing the very opposite of glorifying Him. But when we take responsibility for our sin and confess it, we glorify God by admitting that He had nothing to do with it. He's not to blame. Let me illustrate this even further from the book of Revelation, chapter 16. So go over, all the way over to the f- very last book of the Bible, Revelation 16. Verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. There's the connection again. If they would have repented of their sin, then in in repenting they would have acknowledged that their sin was their fault. God had nothing to do with it. If they had repented of their sin, God would have been glorified because he would have been exonerated. Confessing our sin glorifies God. If we had time, we could go back to Psalm 51, that, that, that uh, amazing confession written by David. One of the statements he makes there, I think it's verse 4 of Psalm 51, he makes this little parenthetical comment. He's acknowledging his sin, and he says that you might be justified, talking to God. What does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is this. He knew that as a result of his sin, that God was going to discipline him, that there were going to be consequences. So hear this. David wrote Psalm 51 to be a public confession so that when God disciplined David, God didn't look bad. So that people wouldn't look at God and say, oh, what, how harsh, how unfair. No, David was saying, listen, I acknowledge my sin And whatever consequences God brings are righteous. Don't impugn God. Don't blame God. This is my fault. Because David understood that confessing our sin glorifies God. That's number five on our list. Number six, we glorify God by ministering to one another. Look at 1 Peter 4, and this should be very familiar to you. Uh, from this morning, so we won't spend a lot of time on it, but just a reminder, First Peter chapter 4, verse 10, <clears throat> as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Here's the, here's the crescendo, or here's the goal, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When we show love to each other, 
by ministering to each other, then that presents a good and accurate, proper picture of God's family, and that glorifies God. We glorify God by ministering to one another. And as Peter says in the same text, by loving one another, you remember what Jesus said, by this, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we glorify God by loving one another and ministering to one another. Number seven, we glorify God by trusting Him. Look at Romans chapter 4. Go back to the left to Romans chapter 4. This is Paul extolling the example of Abraham. And you remember God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would be parents. And it was, it was laughable at their age that they would be parents. And from a human standpoint, it seemed impossible. And in verse 19, it says this of Abraham, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not, this is a great verse, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Do you see how Paul connects Abraham's trust with giving glory to God? God is glorified when we trust him because that affirms the fact that God is trustworthy. When we fail to trust God, then we are, maybe we don't mean to do this, but we're questioning his nature, and then we put the question out to other people. It sort of puts the question out there, well, can you really trust God? Is God really trustworthy? Remember now our, our definition, glorifying God is enhancing his reputation in the eyes of others. So if we give the impression, well, maybe he's not trustworthy, we're not enhancing God's reputation. We're, we're actually doing the opposite. So God is glorified when we trust him. And when we trust him, especially through things like what is described, things that are described here, through things that from a human standpoint just don't make sense. When we can trust God through things that don't make sense, we glorify God because we are saying God is trustworthy. God doesn't make mistakes. I, I don't understand what he's doing. I don't have to understand. God is trustworthy, and I will trust him. Number eight, we glorify God by praising him. Go back to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Not surprising that one of these passages on glorifying God would be found in the Psalms since they are about extolling God and giving praise to God. Psalm 50, verse 23. The interesting thing about this one is this is, this is a, not an inspired statement like by Peter or by Paul. This is a direct statement from God himself. And it's the first phrase there in verse 23. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. When we recite the marvelous works of God, when we give him thanks, when we give him credit, then obviously that glorifies him because that enhances his reputation. 
In fact, I can remember many years ago being taught by Dr. Ron Allen, a, a, a really a great scholar in, in Hebrew studies, Old Testament, etc. And he brings out in, in, in one of his lectures the idea that, that giving thanks, uh, giving thanks really is, instead of a direct, I thank you, God, it is telling others what God has done for you, and that is the way we give thanks to God, by passing along to others what God has done. That's enhancing his reputation. So we glorify God by praising him. So these are some of the ways the Bible says we glorify God. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. If you wanted to further this study, you could just take a concordance and look up the phrase glorifying God or giving glory to God. And you could find passages, as I've done for this, just passages that spell out very specifically what it means to glorify God, how we glorify God. But the point to drive home is this. We were made to bring glory to God. That is, we were created for that purpose. We were redeemed to bring glory to God. You remember Ephesians 1, which is about the work of the triune Godhead in, in, the triune Godhead in salvation. And each one, of those phrase, each one of those sections, after talking about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit, ends with something to the effect to the praise and glory of God. So we were created to bring glory to God. We were redeemed to bring glory to God. So what a tragedy it is when we present a faulty picture to those around us about what God is like. Beloved, I can't, I can't stress enough how important it is that we, as God's people, realize that we represent God to people around us. I think there are few things that grieve me in life than knowing about Christians who are very open about being Christians and yet are shady in their business dealings or they're, they're unfair in things they do. It's just an awful thing. It is such an awful thing, and it creates such a barrier to the gospel. And that's why Scripture and over and over again reminds us that the glory of God is connected to us. It's connected to our character. It's connected to our words. It's connected to our actions. It's connected to our reactions. Glorifying God is the goal and sum total of everything. In fact, look at what Paul said about it in 1 Corinthians 10. This is the last passage we'll look at. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sure many of you have this short verse memorized. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything in life. Do not. Do not split up your life into sacred, sacred and secular. Saying, this is sacred what I do in here. And then out there in the secular world, I use language I would never use in this building. Oh, how many Christians there are like that. They speak in a way out in the world that they would never speak in these, within this room or in these walls. They use language they would never dare even think of using. And somehow they believe it's okay because that's secular and what we do in here is sacred. No. Verse 31, whatever you do, even something as mundane as eating and drinking, do it all to the glory of God. 
We are called to glorify God in everything we do by acknowledging Jesus as Lord, by bearing fruit, by maintaining unity, by sexual purity, by confessing our sin, by ministering to other Christians, by trusting God, and by praising Him. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. That's what life is all about for us as Christians. Let's pray to that end as we close. And maybe take just a moment here as we bow our heads just to reflect and just to do a little evaluation since this is so utterly important for us as God's people. Think about these things on the list that we have looked at and just think about where your life is at in relation to those things. First of all, have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you acknowledged him as Lord? Have you received him as Lord of your life? That's the starting point. And then do you glorify God by bearing fruit, by the fruit of the Spirit, which is character traits, not just actions, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, but also by the fruit of godliness and holy habits? Are you glorifying God by maintaining unity? You work hard at it. Even when maybe you think, well, I, you know, this, this, I was done wrong. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do this thing, even if it creates division. Maintain by sexual purity. You cannot, you must not, if you are a Christian, bring Jesus into immorality. But that's what you do if you are a Christian and you're involved in immorality. Are you glorifying God by confessing sin or have you sort of lapsed into the habit that all of us very easily lapse into, going all the way back to the original sin of whenever we sin, just making an excuse? Well, you know, it's not my problem, not my fault. It's because of this. No, just we glorify God by just confessing our sin. We glorify God by loving and ministering to other Christians. We glorify God by trusting Him. Are you trusting Him through the hard things in life when it doesn't make sense, doesn't look right? But are you still showing by your life, God, you are trustworthy. I will trust you even though from a human standpoint this seems so bizarre. And are you glorifying God by praising Him, making His his good deeds known to others by passing along to others what God has done for you, what God is doing for you. We were bought with a price, therefore glorify God. Father, as we contemplate this subject, we see what an immense responsibility this is as your people and what an immense privilege this is as your people. We are privileged to be able to represent you and to be an epistle of Christ, that is a letter of Christ that other people read. But what a responsibility that has. So help us to guard our words. Help us to guard our hearts. Help us to shatter, if we have in, in our minds, any thinking of a distinction between sacred and secular. May we 
completely throw that out so that we see all of life as sacred and all of life as, a, as an opportunity to represent Christ and as a responsibility to represent Christ. Lord, we would confess and acknowledge that as your people, we often do a poor job. In fact, one of the reasons it's so difficult for the gospel to make progress is because of all the hurdles and all the, the barriers we have put in people's lives by where we fail to be what we ought to be. We acknowledge that. We confess it. We seek your forgiveness and seek your strength to be your people the way we ought to be your people. We pray in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.